This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. I'm going to say it. Bruce Chambers was robbed. Sure, he's won a boatload of awards during his career, and he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his photo of Mary Decker and Zolo Budd in their run-in during the Olympics in 1984. He was robbed. After years of making fantastic images, though, he refocused his life, and he's never looked back. So he won, I think, three different stories won. And I looked at him, I'm like, Paul, how did you shoot all of this in a year? This comes back to my philosophy. How would you possibly put this much effort into your work? He goes, I got divorced this year. I'm like, there it is. You poured yourself into work because you don't have that connection now. I'm Matt Brown host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to my archives. My guests arrange from financial planners, realtors, cancer survivors, Emmy winners, and chair of photography at Art Center College of Design, Everard Williams. It's about building trust at some point, right? And that all that trust building may happen when the person walks on set, you introduce, you have a quick conversation. And, and, and you say something inside that conversation because maybe you've done some research and understand where they are, who they are, what they come from, and all that kind of stuff. And they realize that you got all speak the same language and they kind of relax. Because most of the time people don't want to have a picture taken. They're too busy thinking, this is going to be like my, my fifth grade portrait that looks ugly as hell, so I don't want to be here, right? And so, but now this person makes me feel comfortable, right? I'll give them, I'll give them more than the five minutes that I originally, you know, and next thing you know, you're having a conversation and, and, and making images that are the real person as opposed to some manufactured, you know, posed kind of, kind of thing. The rest of my conversation with Everard can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into part two of my conversation with Bruce Chambers. This is about the time that uh, I have three sons, and they were all, like, in youth sports and band and all sorts of stuff. Just school stuff. Everything yeah. that naturally ch- children and go I was through. missing all sorts of it, obviously, being on this rotation shift. And I'd been missing it since they were born. You know, we, we all worked holidays. And, and it was interesting. You guys almost all had kids about the same time, between, like, you and Leonard and Reitmeyer and Goulding. And- yeah. In fact, there was this, like, Right before we all had kids, everybody was okay with the rotation shift because right. it enriched your portfolio, your experience, because you were either the night sports guy or you're the day general reporter and all this Weekends, stuff. whatever. You, so yeah. nobody want, wanted it. And the single guys would like bargain to work your holidays sometimes because they get double pay. Yeah. And all that. Or, you know, my Jewish colleagues would take Christmas or something. Right. They'd work things out. But... You know, you were always missing stuff. And it was like, and I I was talking to my pastor, and I remember I told you earlier that I had mentors who I was always trying to please, and he wanted me to do a bunch of stuff. And he even told me one time, like, I should quit my job because, you know, it interfered with what I should be doing at church. And I was like, well, what do you do after Sunday? You preach a sermon. And he's looking at me, and I go, you go home, you turn on your TV, and you watch the Laker game. Right? And he's like, yeah. And I'm sitting three feet from the pole, you know, of the, the, the hoop, you know? 
And I said, he goes, yeah, well, you know, they're perfect. I go, so would you tell the Lakers not to play on Sunday? You know, and he's like, uh, I go, he goes, yeah, but they're professionals. I go, so am I, <laughs> you know. So we had this, like, contentious kind of thing. But he, he goes, well, how could you, like, get a set schedule? And I go, it's impossible. We don't have such a thing. So um, he goes, well, what is it you do better than other people that maybe you could, like, you know? I go, I'm the news photographer. I'm the guy who'll do the chasing. And he's like, and they have, he goes, well, you have this shift. He goes, well, could you ask for it, like, permanently, the, the Metro Dog shift? And I'm like, I could ask, but I'm not going to say it, you know. Then I realized, like, Mike Katata had been given this deal where he could, like, coach his kid's soccer team for the season. Of course, Mm -hmm. he paid for that because he had to sit at the desk. Yeah, right. right? Which I hated. In fact, early on when we first had email, I mean, literally first had email when it was a thing, and I didn't know what uh, copy all meant. (laughs) They sent out an email that said, who wants to work the desk? And remember, I worked six months at the PT back in the 80s. I never wanted to do it again. In fact, at one point, they tried to hire me, and I, I said, you, I'll take the job if you double my pay. <laughs> and they're like, we'll find somebody. So they said, who wants to work the desk? And I emailed back all Never, yet, nada, nunca. <laughs> and everybody on staff is like, what an asshole. They're like, how do you really feel about it, Bruce? And I'm like, oh, you know. But I literally just never did it. I never did it. I always tried to f- keep myself out of the office, out of sight, just doing my thing. So, Did that just feel being at the desk like you were just having your life sucked out yes. of you? Part of it. I respect the people who do it, especially the ones that do it well. I don't respect the people I worked with over the years who aspired to be the boss and really didn't have the chops. Right. But uh, what I, made a good photo editor to you? Uh, well, somebody who trusted you, like your news judgment. Like I, Marsha Prouse is my boss, probably the longest. And you know, she used to question, "Why do you do this? Why do you do that?" And you know, we get in arguments all the time and. And we're the same age, and I was at a point in my life where saying no was okay. It was pushing the limits. And she trusted me, you know? And she was like, she would tell me to do something, and I go, that's a freaking waste of time. How do you know? I go, 35 years of experience. I know, 20-some years here at the register, I know that is not going to happen, you know? And she used to call me and say, I need you to go do this thing, you know, in the eighth hour of my eight-hour shift. And I'm like, why me? Why not so-and-so? Because I know that's who's on shift now, right? And she's like, well, because I trust you. And I'm like, well, who do you trust? She named off three photographers who I won't name. Right. Not pissed off everybody she didn't name. And I'm like, yeah, well, why don't you just fire the rest of them? She's like, what? I'm like, why do you have pay these people that you don't trust? You know, push them. So she sometimes make me do it. But sometimes she'd listen. I had a nice. Well, uh, the other person, Mike Pilgrim, was the assistant photo editor. Mm-hmm. 
he was awesome because he would be running. He would run. He he had been a photographer for a mm -hmm. long time, right? And so he was like, he really knew I knew what I was talking about, and so he would call me up all the time, try to get me to do some crappy thing, and I was like, no, no. Every now and then it intrigued me, you know. But like they always crack me up. Like I'm in the middle of like an eight nine year stint of doing nothing but news, and they call me up and they're like, "Hey, I thought it, maybe you'd want to like do something that's like a little different pace." And I'm like, "Yeah, what?" Well, we have this drill of like an earthquake drill. I go, "Wait a minute." So instead of shooting the real news, you want me to shoot the fake news? <laughs> <laughs> the the predetermined fake news of practice. Yeah. Yeah, just garbage. He go, yeah, you're right. I'll give it to somebody else. <laughs> but what makes a good photo editor? Um, you have to be a good editor. You have to keep your ego out of it. If you're into power over the photographer, like it's my way or the highway, that's, I mean, I dealt with that with everybody, but, and they were the boss. You know, and they they had the best interest in the paper, and they knew what kind of ridiculous things would be said in those meetings where they had to try to sell something. But I think being a cheerleader for for the photo staff when it costs you something, like a lot of the bosses would not treat the photo staff well because if they were seen as productive, they'd get a bonus financially, and you're like. Mm. Right. You know, you sold this out, you know. So standing up for us and getting in the way, protecting us. I had a photo assistant once who called me in a panic because he'd been in one of those meetings and I was out shooting news and he goes, we need a picture now. It's when we are doing literally real-time photography on the web. And I would go, well, I haven't seen it yet. So I, he goes, well, just give me a picture of wet pavement. I don't care because they wanted some, like, weather shit. I'm like... Not with my name under it. Right. And I said, um, he goes, well, I'm under all this pressure, and I have a mortgage, and I could lose my job. And I'm like, I get that. I said, but here's what your job is. You are the protector of the photo staff. You can say, yeah, well, we'll get on it. But if I can't find it, I'm not going to invent it. If you want to go take a picture out the window, go, go for it. And they would do, literally do stuff like that. But, oh. you know, then I call them back an hour later, and I'm like, I just shot your front page, and now you can show it to them. Right. They, maybe they had to wait, you know. But that standing up for the, for the photographers, always pushing a photographer to better things. Holy cow. Uh, you know, sometimes a bad editor would just say, I don't like this. But if they could say why they thought it wasn't up to your speed or your par, or, you know, why is it's not as good as what you I know you can do? You needed somebody like that constantly because, like, I can. T I remember I used to just get burned out all the time, and I was like, I've been doing this for thirty some years, you know, and I'm like, uh. and I remember Carlson saying to me one day, "I'm like, I'm just, I go, I'm just burned out," and I'm like like just been doing the same thing over and over and over and he goes well get over it because i need a picture today you know <laughs> and i you know i've i got a really great feature that day and he's like there you go you know was there ever a point where you said 
Okay. I've been in OC 10 years now at the register. Would I be willing to take the kids, uproot them, and go to New York, D.C.? No. Dallas, anywhere. You you really put to rest, I'm not looking anywhere. I'm going to make this roots for the family. Yes, I did that. And I... Was that hard to swallow? Yeah, because I knew... It was kind of like, I could have had my shot, you know? Right. But... I could have been a contender. I could have been a contender. <laughs> but I was still a contender in a lot of ways. You know, I, I one day I was working and they're like, you want to go to Katrina with the FEMA team? You know, the... Res- the yeah, you got hours notice, right? Wasn't I, it? Like two or three hours notice. Right. And I was like, well, when? Like in two hours? You know, basically drive up to the reg, you know, tell my wife I'm leaving for an undetermined amount of time. And in those, it was weird. It was during the, a war in the Middle East. So mm-hmm. there was like no planes. So we had to take a bus. And it was like, they drive up to the register and they keep putting crap in bags for me to take. And they gave me this like antique satellite dish thing that never worked. I called the boat anchor, you know, <laughs> like I'm in Dallas trying to get this thing to work while we're on a layout, you know, but I kept getting assignments like that. I got to do the four Olympics, three of them at the register, you know, and, um, did that feel weird, weird to go from 1984, big dog at the Olympics shooting black and white. So you're still processing film. It's very different at that time. There's thousands of photographers running all over the Olympics and then going to 2000 and now everybody's got digital and oh, digital's yeah. new, and it's it's still kind of wonky. Well, you had to, you know, like when Michael, you know, I remember I told you, I don't want to do the Olympics back to back to back because I don't want to be hated here. Right. Um, and I think I, I honestly do like to share. So I thought, you know, Michael's earned this. I've known Michael since, Michael Golding, since college when he was on my photo staff at the Daily Titan. And he was shooting sports then. You right. know, it's his thing. But I had I gave him the he'd never shot an Olympics, so I kind of gave him the lowdown of how this works. Well, he shot ninety-six. Oh, did he? Yeah, him and Paul went in ninety-six. Uh well, anyways, he it's been a long time. Right. And, it, it, but that was film. Again, totally different. Well, I kinda there's a whole political system to the Olympics, too. Oh yeah. So it's kind of like, here's how you game the system, you know? Like for instance, you have to schmooze the olympic u.s olympic committee guy who's in charge of photo photo marshal right yeah to give you tickets to select events so that you can get into some events like you can't just go to every event there's only a certain amount of photo positions and the u.s committee for instance only gets a handful of so they give them to who they think is important so you know i in 2000 (laughs) I walk into the swim venue guy, and I know I have like six or seven gold medalists on my, from Orange County. And I'm like, dude, I go, I am a photographer on a two-man team. We don't even have a photo editor. We are pushing deadlines constantly. We don't have the money of Getty or whoever, you know, I didn't say is bribing you right now. <laughs> um, but I go, I need a decent seat in the swim venue. And he's like, 
looks around like, is anybody look watching? He says, come back on the first day. He goes, what do you want? I go, I want A section, which is like literally right next to the touch line at the pool. And he goes, come back. So I come back, and he does the look around like nobody's looking. He opens it up. Somewhere around here, it's, there's a card, like a business card, and it says Section A on it. And people are always like, how the hell did you get that? And I go, well, I had like 300 fellow Christians praying for me. <laughs> that might have something to do with it because there's no reason that guy should have given me the thing. And I end up, he goes, just go in like everything's normal. And, you know, you pick the seat that's open. And my seat was next to Heinz Klumpmeyer. And it was Phelps' first gold medal race. And Phelps takes off. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm too close to the end line because I can't really get too many great shots of his stroke. And he comes in, and he's a humble guy at this point. He wins the gold medal. And I can't remember who won the bronze but they're like two lanes down and i'm looking straight into his face i can see the reflection of the stadium and his goggles on his head and he looks at his fellow teammate and he gets this huge smile on his face and i have the front page of the new york times you know it's like those kind of things constantly happen to me at the olympics you know but it was like you had to like play the game so I don't remember where your first question was. Well, just in, in, in that regard, I mean, first of all, if you're sitting next to Heinz, you're in a good spot. Yes. <laughs> oh, back to see Sydney. Um, that was Athens, actually. In Sydney, I've heard that if you wanted a seat permanently, you would buy a phone line to your seat and that all the Japanese photographers were gaming the system and buying up these seats. So I went into the same guy four years before and said, I have gold medalists I have to cover. And I can't stand in line and wait to get in. And then, you know, right. I said, so what's the deal? And he told me about the phone line thing. So I bought one without asking the register if I could spend $600. And it paid off. So yeah, wise idea. Because you know the answer would And I was, no. again, sitting, I was like right behind Heinz, you know. And... So two years, two in a row, I did these things. But, you know, you had to learn the system. You had to, like I said before, you have to learn how to push the rules. Because, you know, like I got burned in London. Because by then, there was some politics and money being exchanged somehow. Shady, I think, where certain agencies were given inside the track passes mm -hmm. at track and field and you were shooting with 800 from hoping that the at the high jump that the, the the referee would get out of the way so you could or that the getty photographer down there with his orange vest on wasn't in your frame every single time you just like like we were joking outside about god's my grip i was like god please make that guy trip right now so i can get a clean shot of this gold medal event or know? just at least be short not send the six five guy in no giant vest exactly so you know just it just worked it but you know i was it interesting though how was it going to athens 16 years later digitally it was a pain in the butt because the digital camera at the time was like a nanosecond late yeah huge delay total so trash. i did all the uh, trials 
And I learned, for instance, like when the shot put guy was facing away to fire. That's how long the delay was. Holy Christ. And then I learned that I went to the the swim trials in this chlorine bath um, in Indianapolis, you know, the beautiful city of Indianapolis, where I don't know why I don't have lung cancer. And I learned how to time that delay. It was Athens when the, the camera was right on the money. But, you know... Not every sports picture is about timing, and sometimes it's about waiting for the reaction or, you know, doing the graphic thing or something like that. So you could kind of get around it in Sydney. In Athens, you had back, you had a full functioning camera. And then, but then it was like... But by the time you go to London, you're talking a full frame. Oh, yeah. Not, not crop factor yeah, anymore. And full eight, frame. Eight frames a second. Yeah. And, yeah. It was, battery lasts you, you know, through the was, event. Oh, yeah, and it had tracking focus. I never forget. I, I, went, I went to kiss the ass of the, of the Olympic guy, and he loved me because I walked in and I was like, uh, here's my story. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't have a credential until 30 minutes ago, and thank you for making that happen. I walked in the media center and went straight there. And I go, and I haven't shot Olympics in eight years. I haven't shot sports in eight years. And I have this, you know, Orange County contingent. Here's my superstars. I need those access. I said, and literally three days ago, I didn't even know I was going to be here. And he's like, wow. And people kept coming up, and he's like, listen to this story. This guy's shooting the Olympics, and he didn't even know he was going to be here, and he hasn't done it in eight years. And but the thing that sealed the deal with the guy was, I said, look, I know how this works. You get a certain amount of tickets, and I need one of them. And I need to give you justification why I need it. But here's the other thing. He goes, I know some of these big shots, like, you know, from the bigger papers, well, say they need it, but they don't really need it. They don't even use it sometimes, you know. I said, so I need your phone number, so... Because, one, I can't come in here every day because I'm a one-man band. I don't have an editor, nothing. Was that terrifying? No, but it was hard. Um, You don't have a teammate. You don't have an editor. You're you're eight hours ahead. Yeah, it was hard. Um, For instance, the Olympic... When I was in Athens, the Olympic transportation system was super slow, and I was getting like four or five hours of sleep because I, the buses would take so long to get you back and you'd be going like three in the morning trying to take a bus. I learned how to use, they gave us full access to the tube in, uh, in, in London, London okay. in addition to the Olympic bus system. That's huge. So I learned how to game the system. <laughs> I was like, one day I was laying in bed and I was like, I had shot the men's marathon at the, Big Ben, mm-hmm. and it was raining. It was a gorgeous picture, and for some reason that that day, the news bumped me out, and they didn't use that picture. And I thought it was my favorite pictures, and I had spent like three hours staging and all that. And then the women's was coming up, and they were going to run right across the same thing. I was laying in bed like you know seven o'clock, and the race was like at eight thirty, and I was like, crap, or it was, was going to be. It was less than an hour. I'm running down the street, jumping in the, the, the tube at King's Cross, making a couple connections, yeah. popping out of the tube, walking over to the thing five minutes before they run by, shoot the same picture. Then they ran at six columns, you know? <laughs> and it's like, 
I just like learn how to do it, you know, but it was, it was always hard. Four Olympics in, you figure it out. And I figured it out. <laughs> exactly. Plus you had that real time during the Sydney and Athens games, the delay of trying to transmit photos internationally on the phone. To, it was just like slow and ter- terribly horrible. By London, you could dump, you know, like a ton of photos. Then I learned other things like, you know, you have to caption. So you're on like, and you have to be accurate. So, you know, who was in the race? Who, what was their time? What was all this? So there's this whole Olympic system of information with all that on there. But then I realized somebody said, <laughs> you know, that AP has like five people probably that do that for their photographers. Why don't you just cut and paste their captions? And I'm like, duh. You know, that right. that gave me hours. Well, that's, <coughs> that saves you so much time and so much back relief that you could just yeah. have it filled but, in. You know, literally. In- yeah, that was a much easier way to do it. Otherwise, and again, Really, you couldn't have someone designate as a photo editor and they can look that up? I mean, it's the women's marathon. It's not that hard to caption. You had literally, like, at that point, you had Getty photographers at track level looking, you know, in a well, looking at the finish line for that beautiful angle of people running at you. Wired into a system where they never even looked at their film. Right, all- Some editor was just taking it off, sending it off, and I'm still walking around. I got to go find a computer, plug it in, <laughs> download it, edit it, caption it, you know. Just, and it was kind of a lonely experience, too. You just didn't have a social life during the mm-hmm. Olympics. I remember two of my favorite rock star photographers having a pissy match about all this great stuff they'd done in their lives while I was working in the media room, you know? <laughs> it was like, well, I did this and I did that. You know, it was very passive-aggressive, but, you know, they were trying to... Outdo uh, one another. One another and laugh. you wanted to look over and say, shut up, I'm capturing here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm fucking working here. Excuse my French. But, but take your goddamn pissing contest outside. Yeah, yeah I mean, come on. You guys... Ooh, you guys you made, those You out. guys have made, yeah, you guys have a rough, an international reputation. You've made a fortune off of your business. And I'm still working for <laughs> the Orange County Registry. You know? And I'm capturing women's water polo. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah, definitely. The <laughs> love of God. So. Well, go ahead. I think, you know, we've gone a while, but I think what changed Something changed. So you were asking about how I got to be a therapist in yeah. all of this, right? So I mean, that's a change in your life. That's a huge like flip of a switch. Even though I'm working as a a um, local photographer, made that choice to give up my career and you know my career goals. I didn't really give up my career goals. I just changed them. Right. But I lowered it from. Being James International Knock- Playboy, James Knockway <laughs> to Bruce Chambers, you know, I remember every time I saw James Knockway at a convention, we'd go up and talk to him like he was God. Plus, this was the last time we we're going to see him because he took so many freaking risks in life. You know, mm-hmm. thank God he's still alive, killing it. But um, I couldn't be that anymore. I was a dad, right? I remember I was hiking one day. I took my son on a trail, and we were out in the middle of the Sierra, and I was, like, walking. He was, like, 12, my oldest son. 
and I was like looking over a cliff, but it really wasn't, I wasn't that close. But from where he was looking, he thought I was on the edge of death. And he starts yelling at me like, knock it off. You're always taking risks. And he was like getting emotional. I'm like, come over here. It's like, there's like, three, you know, and he's like, you always do this. And he starts talking about, you go to the riots, you go to the, you go to Cambodia, you go to Nicaragua, you know, you put your life at risk. I need a dad, you know? And I was like, that tore me up. I'm like, I didn't realize he was that scared. Like 9-11, I'm in bed and I come out and just the second plane hits the, the, the Twin Towers, the phone rings. Marsha Prouse is like, pack your bags, you're going to New York. And I'm like, are you crazy? And she's like, I go, I don't know anything about New York. I don't, you know, that's the capital of photojournalism of the world. I'm sure you're going to get better pictures from people who are on the ground right now. She's like, just do it, you know. So I end up going to the airport. They shut down all the flights. I don't get to go anywhere. And a waste of my day. Sent me to the border for a non-photo. Um, <laughs> But Ian gets the message, your dad went to 9-11 while he's in, like, freshman in high school, you know. So I chose to take that very stressful metrodog shift. In fact, that is my nickname. That's my email because I did it for, like, eight years straight. And what happened was I had a boss, Jody Steck at the time, who... Hard ass, hard ass. No, I got in so much trouble with her for my decisions. She, <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. Um, but I respected her. But she was like AP person, so she was like, "You need to constantly be shooting pictures. Whatever, you, don't be resting." Go think of something else to do. Like if I was covering the Republican convention in San Diego, I need to be on the streets shooting. I'm like, Jody, I don't work for the AP, you know. But I wanted that shift, that permanently. And I'm like, can I have the shift where I work for, as the Metro dog person, for like permanently? She says no. I go, how about? I go, well, you gave Katara a dispensation for the season so he could coach his kids. And I go, how about three months? She's like, all right, fine. And she goes, I still don't think it's going to be worth it, right? So by the grace of God, I was, like, killing it. I had, like, front page, local page, like, every day, sometimes both, because I was set free to do news, and I... What I didn't say about Brusick one day, he said, the manager, one day he said, the photographers need to shoot pictures that demand to be printed, as if we weren't. It's really insulting, you know. But I was like, okay, I'm going to give you pictures that you cannot deny. So I worked long hours, I worked hard, and I was kind of blessed by, at the time, I think, you know, just things fell in front of me all the time. And then one day she comes in and she says, I think I'm going to let you have your way and you can be the Metro dog. And I go, good, because here's two, two rolls of film. This is your front page and this is your local page. And I was right, you know. And so I started doing it, but it wore on me. It was brutal 
because they kind of like the rest of the staff, you know, a photojournalist is tasked to shoot breaking news all the time. Like if you're shooting an environmental portrait, like we were joking about, you know, the restaurant review, um, and a plane crashes next door, you don't finish your job. <laughs> Hold on, I got to get this shot of the chefs. <laughs> like, yeah, you go do it, right? Sure. But even to this point, it was like, uh, you know, uh, there'd be a header of smoke somewhere in North County where I was, and there there might be a photographer like a block away, but he's like, Chambers will handle it. It became that, you know, if, he, if I was on shift, you know, they didn't, they just like, oh, I don't want to do that. So Bruce will get it. So I was shooting like 80% of the trauma. And that gets to your soul after a while. Because I was shooting a lot of like, I shot a lot of house fires where people lost everything, you know. But more importantly, I was shooting a lot of gang shootings. And I would show up and the mom would be there. And her son's body's under yellow tarp. And I got to shoot a picture that's susceptible for the breakfast rule at the Orange County Register. Mm -hmm. you don't borrow from your Wheaties by this picture. And I got to talk to these people. So I'm talking to moms who just had their son shot for, you know, some 13 year old shot by the local gang member. And, you know, that stuff used to get to me. And then my marriage started to really take a hit. I had three kids. My wife, Took a year off to try to be a stay-at-home mom. It's not her thing. We had a lot of tension. We needed eventually to either get divorced or go to marriage therapy. And we chose the latter. <laughs> and the, 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 the counselor was actually a counseling pastor at this mega church I went to, but he was a really good... He did this on the side. And he taught me how to handle my emotions, how to communicate with my wife. He taught me, you know, how to get this back on track, how to set boundaries with my bosses. And um, so then, you know, I started to become like in the communication system on the computer with the, rest of the registered photographers, they'd be all pissed off. I'm pissed off at the photo editor. I want to rant. So I'd like sit in my car and I'd like, yeah, yeah. And I'd be doing therapy with them, trying to keep them calm. Like, like a lot of them really did not like Marsha Prouse's style, mm -hmm. but I was friends with Marsha Prouse. I just kind of understood her. Right. Right. And that was part of it. I started to, I remember one time I was at a, I was at a, a murder suicide and I knew the cops really. I, I started, I worked it so long that sometimes the cops would lift the yellow tape up and walk me over to show me something. You know, it was ridiculous. Hmm. But it took years to get that kind of status. But I remember being in a murder suicide and talking to the d detective, and I'm like, I, he doesn't, I don't know anything. I'm like way down the street, and I'm looking at positions of bodies, and I'm like, murder suicide, right? And he's like, how the hell would you know that? You know, I'm like, well, I'm just like thinking there's, you know, there's a dead guy, dead woman, a dead guy. And the positions, you know, he like shot both of them and then he shot himself. Yeah. You know, well, how do you know that? I go, well, it's a pattern, you know. Yeah. I saw it Tuesday. <laughs> I saw it Tuesday. So I started to like think about that stuff. Like I didn't just cover a murder scene or a, 
tragedy. I start to think about what, well, how's this affecting the people? How's this, you know, and that's better photography. I learned, I got schooled a couple times by really good photographers who would show up the same scene as I am. Like I used to try to tell people that were doing news, like if I wasn't able to cover fire, they'd send somebody else and there'd be this giant ball of fire you know, like sometimes like literally blocks and registers. So the photographers <laughs> practically walk there and they get there and they'd shoot nothing but flames. And then the editors would be like, and then the next day you'd look at the LA Times and there's the family that's affected by the fire with the flames in the background, crying, hugging. Mm-hmm. And then they just like, dude, don't look at the bright, shiny thing. Go over the human angle every single time. Right. And, you know, I got schooled with that a couple times, too many times, and I'm like, okay, I will do that. And it was hard because I'm somewhat of an introvert, so to walk up to a complete stranger, yeah, ask them what how their life is going in the worst moment of their life, that was tough. Sure. So I went to counseling, got my marriage back on track, started to make some boundaries in my job, telling my bosses, no, I'm not going to work you know, like 12 <laughs> hours today. Unless there's some upside to it, like I'll bank those four hours and take them off. You know, give me right. six hours on some other day off. But, um, and then um, all that tension kind of changed my relationship with the church I've been going to for 25 years, and it was just toxic. And I realized that I was just being used there. Really? Yeah. Just kind of like, I've been here for 25 years, and you still don't even know who I am, but you're telling me what to do with my life. And so I left. And I went to a big place, uh, EV Free Fullerton. It's like okay. a 3,000-member church. I know that, yep. And, you know, I kind of restored the, my idea of why I was a Christian there because it was like they talked about grace. And they, they when they asked you to do something, if you said no, they didn't freak out. <laughs> And say, well, you know, you're not being a good Christian. And they're like, okay, I'll get somebody else to do it. I was like, wait, you can say no here? You know? And so. Well, I'm finding this out at work. I'm finding this out at church. Yeah. So I was like, okay. I told my wife. We were super involved at the other church. I was the Sunday school teacher, the greeter. I was in charge of a nonprofit organization that they founded. I was in charge of, I was in the choir. I was in all this stuff. Good God, Bruce. I was leading a small group. And. I went to the new church and I go, we're not going to do anything for like a year. We're just going to sit here and kind of observe how this church works and then find, you know, find a home for like a Sunday school class. But they had this thing called a gift shop, which my wife ended up teaching at one point. But it was kind of like, what are you good at? Where would you plug in best? And when I took it, they said, you could either be a core group leader for high schoolers or a lay counselor. And I was like, I can't put the time in for a core group job. That's like a part-time job. Right, that's a lot, right? The, core, the lay counselor thing was you have one client at a time. You see them once a week, and you only, you, you know, you get trained for a year, but then you only have to go to supervision and do your job once a week for like an hour, two hours. I'm like, so I did that, and from the same guy who had been my... Did it come natural? Yeah. Hmm. And, well, my wife's better at it than I am, but (laughs) 
Um, I have the degree. Um, but, you know, I did it for like, I think like five years. And, um, you know, we didn't just like counsel church members. We counseled anybody that it was free and anybody that would need it. So I had some pretty unique stuff going on. And was, I learned a lot from my supervisor. Was there a point where, though, you're at the register going, I need a backup plan? Like, yes. I see the writing on the wall. Yes. That day, I think I alluded to it earlier, was... Um, because people had started to leave, right? So Well, they started laying people off. And I was the highest paid photographer at the register. I knew that because Marsha would remind me of that anytime I, like... Said no, you she know. would remind you. Of no, that. she wasn't really well, mean, right? But, but she was like, You're a highly paid person, you know. And if I complain, like for the last eight years of the register, I didn't get a raise ever, nobody got raises for eight years, yeah. Well, I think like two years at the beginning of the last eight years, like two years in, they cut everybody's pay, I think, by like five percent or something like that. Everybody got a pay cut. And then two years later, they gave us a 2% raise and said that we gave you a raise. I'm like, do the math. I'm not paid anymore. I'm paid, still made less than I did three or four years ago. And then I never got a raise. So whenever I complained about cost of living or any of this stuff, you know, I, I said, what's the, what's the upside to, you know, me working my ass off, you know? You get to keep your job. I'm like, really? I, why do I even bother doing a performance review every year? You know, it, there's no, uh, you, every year I get like, you find maybe one thing. So I get a 4.9 out of five, just so you couldn't give me a perfect score or I got perfect scores. And like, it never equated at those last years to any financial gain. So I knew that this, I, I could read the writing on the wall. I was working for the web at this point. I switched over. You know, and we had new bosses who were like about trying to switch to digital journalism, and so they were like, "You need to get clicks." You know, well, the OC it, Post, remember that? Yeah, wonderful idea. Every click you get on the web, we pay attention to. We have a company that checks that. Good upside and bad side to that. I proved to the bosses that breaking news was important because I was the leader and the clicks for the register. The guy who was the second was a guy who took pictures of women with cleavage in bars and did bar reviews. So, okay, sex sells and news sells, right? You should have done bar reviews. I know. <laughs> I would have just been like... Meg, I had millions of clicks. You know, most people had hundreds of thousands. You know, they say it's puppy dogs and boobs. That's what drives the you know Instagram. Well, I was like not really proud of the fact that all I did was journal was breaking news. You know, right. I was getting to the point where I was like, this is kind of shallow, but I like the shift. And by this time, it moved all the way down to six to two instead of nine to six. So I literally, you know, started in my driveway and ended my driveway. And then I had the rest of the day, you know. So I had all these other things I could do, including grad school. So at one point, I was talking to my supervisor at church who had been my marriage therapist, you know, and he's a licensed therapist. And I said something about, you know, I need a backup plan. I don't think that journalism is going to get me through my career. And if it is, I'm going to hate life. 
the way it is now. Mm-hmm. And you could see there was a moment I was sitting in the Olympics and I'm like t- in London and I'm doing some edit and Mindy Shower or it was Mindy, Mindy or Cindy Yamanaka, <laughs> Mindy or Cindy. And one of them says, hey, this guy just bought our paper. He's going to pour money into it. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And I'm like, well, I have plan B and it's staying in place. Good luck with that. You know, I'm not buying it. And yeah, they poured everything into that place and went bankrupt. And, and you know, the day came. I went, I did go to grad school. I had, I had my, my friend, who's my mentor in counseling, say, you know, I will help you. He literally had this lay counseling program for like 30 years, and he had 30 lay counselors who had gone and got licensed. That is a huge endeavor. You have to get a master's degree, and you have to do a 3,000-hour internship. And in this world, in Orange County, you probably won't even get paid for your internship. So you have to work that while you're working a full-time job or you have to be married to somebody with money. So he says, I will help you the best I can if you want to do that. So I started the program. I had a five-year program. And I graduated in 13. And in 14, I was doing a part-time internship and working. And Michelle Carden was very gracious because she was the boss and she knew that mental health was a big, was a big issue. One, because she's an awesome person in that way, but also, you know, being the boss, she saw the stress of people losing their jobs and was, like, worried about their welfare. And a couple of times she asked me, like, you know, this person's getting laid off. I don't think they're going to handle it well. What do I do? Who do I have them go see? That kind of stuff. But she created... just a place for me to go to my supervision in the middle of my shift I had to go to the supervision like at 2 o'clock or like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning and Kenny Steinhardt would cover me and they just you know he he was doing half the county but he he loved Mm -hmm. to come back up north sure because that's where everything happens so he would cover me and I would literally like go to my supervision sometimes and this is the best part in my first internship it was a place called Mariposa Women's Family Center in Orange the boss in charge of the supervision and education that we all had to have used to work for the Dallas Morning News and she talked me in at this like job fair to applying at her place I, I, I thought you don't do you even have guys that work there <laughs> and she's like yeah we have two you know you could be the third, you know? So I would come in, and I was allowed to sit at this table with that they over-hired that year. I was the, they only hired, like, two people a year, and I was one of those two, but then they decided to hire, like, another 15 people so that they could expand their services, which ended up almost bankrupting them. But I would come in with my computer, and I'd be sitting there, and they weren't even allowed to touch their phones while they were at the table. And I'm like, posting. <laughs> and she's like, Bruce is the exception to the rule because he has a deadline. I understand it. And they're like, well, what are you doing? And I'd flip it around. be a murder scene. They're like, ah! You know? <laughs> Jesus, Bruce! And I'd be like, 
I like literally would sometimes walk away from a murder scene or something like that and have to go in and sit in the in a room with somebody grieving as a therapist, you know? So that was a rough place because I was being traumatized in the field and then I come in and have to be the therapist. And actually did me a disservice as a therapist at first. Like my supervisors are like, you know, they would watch your work. You'd like have to record it, you know, and they're like, why did you just skip off from the thread you were talking about right there? That's just bad therapy. That person, you could have taken that down into a very cathartic place. Why did you skip? And I'm like, uh, I have no idea. And my boss is like, perhaps because you don't want to touch your own trauma. And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe, you know. <laughs> so they're like, two points. <laughs> they're like, you need to go to your own therapist. And so I started seeing a therapist while I was being a therapist, which helped. And plus, they kind of gave you a bonus on your hours. Every, t- every hour you sat with a therapist, you got three out of your 3,000. So the last okay. year, I did like quite a few hours that way and shortened up my internship. But I was like at the register. One day, they sent me an email you know, to everybody on the photo staff. Uh, you're going to have to take two weeks without pay as the paper was spiraling out of control financially. And I'm like, okay, well, I already have a two-week vacation. I guess I'm just going to do that on my own. And they said, and then I get another email or text, whatever. You need to come to the paper. And they're like, meet, go up to this meeting room. On a floor, we don't usually come in. And we're all sitting, sitting around the table with every photographer and artist at the newspaper. And uh, Curly, his first name, I know two Curlys, I'm trying to remember <laughs> Curly, the, the managing editor, walks in. He's in tears. And he's like, they just told me, meaning the, the owners of the paper, that they're going to lay off 40% of the editorial staff of this newspaper unless we can get enough buyouts. And here the buyout deal is thus. And it was a crap deal. Sure. And But it was better than it got later. And... Now, you will get a text if from HR if you're eligible. And at one point in the meeting, you heard ding, 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 because our staff was veteran staff, and everybody there pretty much right. had been there for 20 years, and they're like, you know, get right. rid of yeah. these highly paid people. So yeah, there's Leonard and Mark. And, and we're walking ding. back to the photo area, <laughs> which they had... They had laid so many people up. They, they, they got rid of the photo lab at one point and made us sit in the, in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And then they had fired so many people in the, fo- in the library that they allowed us to work in there because we didn't even have desks half the time. At one point, I was sitting in the aisle, in the, in the, the aisle on the way to the managing editor's office with my laptop sitting up against the wall. And my boss is like, get up. And I'm like, Why? Goes because Tawny, the manager, is going to walk by here and see you. And I go, that's why I'm sitting here. Let her see. Let her yeah. see how my working conditions are. This is how you treat photographers. You gave everybody else a desk, but the, who? Because they sit at their desk and use their phones to do their stories, but they don't hardly ever go outside, you know. But us who, you know, 
you know, so eventually I moved into my car and never went there except on an expense check day. But I'm walking out of that meeting. Everybody's demoralized. And I remember Mindy saying, Mindy Shower saying, well, at least one person in here has plan B. And I'm like, well, this wasn't my plan. My plan was like to do another two years of slow part-time supervision and then quit. But so I was prematurely outed <laughs> because the deal was take the buyout or take the consequences. If you don't take the buyout and we decide to lay you off, you'll get like two weeks of pay instead of like 24. So I took it. And it was hard, you know. You're, as I said, I had an existential crisis. I remember I went to supervision for my counseling job. First I called my boss, who's another hard ass. And I was like, who... Her, her idea of doing supervision was to see if she could break your spirit by humiliating you. And um, she broke a lot of young people's hearts and, and then kicked them out of the agency because they couldn't hack it. But I called her and I'm like, do I have any job security here? Because you're not, as an intern, you're not on staff. Right. So she's like, well, with me you do. I don't know about the rest of the people who make those decisions. So the next day I get laid off, I go in the supervision and I'm sitting there and I'm looking kind of glum and she's like, what's wrong with you? I go, you're a psychologist, figure it out. Yesterday, I was a world-renowned photojournalist. Today, I'm only a, psycho a marriage family therapist intern and I'm probably never going back because there's no jobs, you know? At least ones that I want to work, mm -hmm. you know? So... She's like, well, maybe you should go get some medication. You know, I'm like, oh, thanks for that. You know, yeah. so I made that switch prematurely in my game plan, but, you know, I was able to, I sucked it up for an entire year financially. Um, my wife, fortunately, has a good job. We, like you were talking about earlier off mic about saving, I had saved like 10% of my salary my whole career from about, 30 on so I had a decent nest egg and you know despite the fact that photojournalism doesn't pay um, so I made that shift and I quickly finished my internship got licensed took the test which is the most brutal test I've ever taken in my life and I mean it's really like four hour test you get one pee break and you know, it's like timed and it's these huge scenarios where you have to figure out answers that could be this or that. You know, I was like, I thought I'd failed it. I actually passed it, but first time. But I was like so traumatized by that that like a week after I passed the test, I like just fell down and fainted one day. And then I went to the doctor and I'm like, you have any stress in your life? And I'm like, Yeah. Where do I start? <laughs> yeah. So I, I worked myself into a full-time practice for like three years, I think it was. Let's see. No, five. Yeah, about three or four years. And I used to be able to work out of my house, uh, not uh, near my house, not out of my house, in Brea. And it was a short drive. 
And, you know, I sometimes would be working from like nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night. I didn't see clients back to back to back, but I'd see a client and have to do paperwork. Then a client wouldn't show up. You know, it's just like I never made any money out of it. It was like maybe, you know, I'd make about half of what I made at the register. But it was important work. Like we kind of had this philosophy when I was in grad school that if I didn't even get a job, I would at least be the most efficient lay counselor that the church had, <laughs> you know. And my goal was to save marriages, and my master's thesis was in infidelity recovery, which in the Christian church is this huge stigma. And, Why is that? Well, because adultery is like this quote-unquote sin that, has been raised above all others. Okay. You know? So if you cheated on your husband or wife, you were shamed in the church, and they didn't know what to do with you. But the guy who mentored me pretty much wrote the book on the subject and even became a therapist. And a pa- he had already been a pastor, became a therapist because his like lead pastor t- two times in a row had cheated on and left the church. So he's like, I got to figure out how this happens, why this happens. And he kind of wrote the book on it and trained me on it. So I spent three years saving people's mar- or trying to save people's marriages. Some I didn't save, but, you know, and then I did all other sorts of stuff with like suicidal teenagers and um, just people with major problems. I, did, I saw a lot of people with like, as I said before, existential crisis. What do I do with this part of my life? Like, I'm 50-something. This is like a very typical thing mm-hmm. that happens. You know, midlife crisis. I'm 50. Have I, I've worked, I've raised a family, I've done this work. Do I really, have I done anything of note, right? right? What should I do now? Or I'll never do it, you know. So just like helping somebody reinvent. Um, or believe in themselves. And then, of course, tons of trauma clients. Yeah, I mean, October 1st, 2017, there's a Vegas shooting, Mm -hmm. and you take part in healing lots of people. That was unbelievable. Well, that was a privilege, and I was having a conversation. I I read about it around midnight on Sunday, I think it was, Mm -hmm. and then on Monday I had to go to work, and I was talking to my wife, and, you know, we were like, Typically, we'll give some money for a relief fund, you know. So we're kind of talking about that. She goes, I heard on the radio that some therapist is offering free therapy. And I'm like, well, duh, you know. So I call my boss. It's a Christian agency. I put that in air quotes. (laughs) I call my boss, and I get the office manager, who's worked there for 30 years. And I said, this is what I want to do. I want to offer free therapy for trauma clients because trauma needs to be dealt with in the first day or two or it sinks in and messes people up even worse. And she says, well, that sounds like a good idea to me. You should probably, you know, text the boss and the boss and make sure that that's okay. And I go, okay. So I text him. And then I start doing it. And I do it for like three days. And then he's like, uh, I just heard that you're doing this. You should have probably asked me. I said, I did. 
He goes, I never got the text. I go, what's your phone number? Wrong phone number. You know, old phone number. And he goes, well, we would have probably run that through the board and decided what we were going to do about it. And I'm like, dude, you know, and I used to get in trouble for this because I was the oldest guy working there practically. I'm like, you know, and this guy's younger than me. I'm like, you know that if I waited for your board to figure that out, we would never help anybody. You know, we need to get on it. So he he says, well, come to the come to an all staff meeting on Friday and we'll talk about it. In the meantime, somebody else had started to do it. So I was considered kind of a rookie compared to some of these people. And they're like, well, yeah, you can do it. And but you know, later they were trying to kind of like trying to figure out how they could still make money at it by having like churches pay for it or something like that. But and then they wanted to shut it down after a month. And we're like, these people are still coming in the doors. You know, the huge amount of people from Orange County. Yeah, hundreds, were there. right? Hundreds yeah. of people probably. We're from here. And yeah. I actually knew, like, I found out how many people I knew through face, Facebook and, and Instagram and all that. That were there? That were there that I knew. So I literally had it, like, one, the first time I ever did it, the first night, I had, like, two, maybe four people. The next night, I had an inkling that it was going to be a lot of people. And I had a fairly large office. And group therapy is okay, but if there's too many people and people don't get to say anything, you know, it needed to be a certain size. So I have a friend who is, to this day, a, a rockin' trauma therapist. And we went through our same cohort and all that. And so I asked her if she could come. She's like, yeah. So we just happened to have two big offices open that night. <laughs> we split the group in half, and we saw about, I don't know, 25 people that night. Wow. And then, you know, then some people were okay with their one session. Other people kept coming back, you know, and the word got out. And I saw people for about a month, and... You know, just like any other company, just like anything I've ever done, they're they they they're like, this is the, what great things we did last year, you know. We, like, offered free therapy. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you know. <laughs> so I worked under the tension of that job for three full years. They're always kind of mad at me because I didn't want to have 40 clients, you know, or I didn't want to, you know. I had a friend, for instance, who... He's a great therapist, but he had like 30, 35 clients. And this is an incredibly ridiculous caseload. I was more like 20 at the peak. So I think when you have that many clients as a therapist, you're doing okay therapy, but not great therapy because you really are just processing people in and out. You're not thinking about it that much. You're doing your paperwork. And yes, if you're a veteran, you could probably get away with it. You know, he was so great because they had a sliding scale and they wanted us to stick to us and they did want us to do um, some pro bono kind of work and you know give some people breaks but they always kind of wanted you to make us enough money mm -hmm. and he was making a fortune because he was giving everybody a low fee but he had so many clients that he was super popular so he was busy but he like worked like 24/7 oh jesus That's no insane and i used to like, go over and bounce on, you know, we do consulting ethically where we don't 
give out names, but I have this case. What do you think about this? You know, we consult mm-hmm. with each other all the time. And, and you know, I just did that for years, and I was like, I can tell you one of my existential crises was um, there's the stage fire that burned down the the San Gabriel is probably worse than they've ever burned. Um, happened while I was an intern about three or four, I don't know how many, after I left the register. And I walked out of my office in Orange and looked across the parking lot, and my adrenaline rose because there's this header on the mountains that looked like somebody dropped a nuclear bomb. It was huge. And I was like, okay, I'm in mode what do I, how do I get there? How do I get through the lines? How do I get past the blockades? How do I put the clothes on? What, how do I keep myself safe? How do I get the pictures back? All that. Thing. Like, you don't work for the paper anymore. You don't have to do a damn thing, you know? And it was a relief and a grieving because it was like, okay, you're not important in this system anymore, you know? That was, kind of, that was kind of hard, yeah. you know? But I was doing important work, and, you know, I only worked five years as a professional therapist, but as, you know, licensed. But, you know, I can look at dozens and dozens of families that would have fallen apart if they hadn't come see me or another therapist. Right. And so there's there's long term to that. But basically, end of the story with my careers was, I've been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, which is this 2,650-mile trail from Mexico to Canada, for decades. I would take, like, a week off and hike 100 miles of it. I started out <laughs> by doing the, the John Muir Trail, which is 220 miles, mm-hmm. which was probably my top five ass- assignments of the register. I used to bug Marsha all the time, my boss. I want to do this trail. You, well, how long is it going to take? Three weeks. And I want to take four weeks just to make sure I get it in there. And she's like, I had four weeks of vacation at this point. And she's like, you can't do it. I'm like, no, why not? You're not allowed to be gone for four full weeks at a row. I'm like, why not? Because you're too valuable to be gone that long. People don't do their uh, your job well. I'm like, so I'll never get to do it. And she's like, don't ever say never. And I think a year went by, and she finally said, I have a proposal. How about you do it as an assignment? I give you two weeks to do it, and you take two weeks of vacation, and, you know, just go do it. Call it even. Yeah. Yeah, Just go. Then we argued for years about whose rights the photos were, you know. Oh, it starts. Yeah. But I did that assignment, and, you know, that was the first time they ever wanted to put photos in the hallway and they were going to rotate it every month. This picture's hung there for a year and a half because nobody wanted them to come down because it was beautiful. And my bosses loved it. And, you know, I won a bunch of awards for it. And it was f- personally fulfilling. And it, But the, and the weird part is 9-11 happened like a week after I finished practically close to that and well just as i was preparing the story for publication 9-11 hits and they just forgot about the story for like the next six months they published it in the next month and then we went i won some decent awards for it and you know but then i started asking them if i could have a week off to 
Then I decided that I found the book for the Pacific Crest Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail starts at the Mexican border and mm-hmm. you walk through the desert. And I'm like, uh, originally I had seen that. And I'm like, screw that. I'll just do the cherry on the top of the Sunday, which is the John Muir Trail, right? I'll skip right to the good stuff. Yeah, so I did that. But then I was like, oh, maybe I'll just start doing sections close to the, you know. And I had, like, partners that liked to hike. Some were photographers, some were. I had a cousin who helped me. Eventually found an older guy that was hiking it that I did lots of it with. And then finally, I had done half of it. I had complete in 2019 i had about four or five little hikes day or two across california up to tahoe that i needed to connect the dots and i did them all because now i was like i could get my weekends off you, know? <laughs> you can get out of here on friday night and get up there yeah i did not work on friday i had three day weekends so i worked like 40 hours four days a week and so i got up there did it and then I was talking to a f- younger friend. I, I've, I've been in all sorts of, like, I have four friends that were in a men's group that we used to get together every week for years. And the younger guy says, you know, Bruce, you're not getting any younger. When are you going to finish the Pacific Crest Trail? And I was thinking about that. And he's like, I go, damn, he's right. I'm like. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. 90, I'm like. 19, I'm like 63 years old or something like that, 62, 62. And I'm like, hmm, um, I think I'll do it in one shot, 1,500 miles. So rather than ask my bosses who don't like me anyways, because I'm always saying my mind, and you know they're not used to that because young hardly paid interns starving for hours and this is the place they need to be are very obedient (laughs) and i'm like uh you're you know i think the way you do things is messed up you know (laughs) and i would speak my mind you know so i said i am going to go do this thing in fact the guy i told you about who worked like 24 7 was like he was a marathoner he was an iron man but he was like, I'm all behind what you're doing. I wish I could do it. You know, maybe, maybe he was a couple of years younger than me. Maybe in a couple of years, I'll be able to give all of this up. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so sure. People were like, literally, I had scored my own office and it was the, one of the best offices. And people were like looking in my door all the time, like measuring the drapes, you know, and I hear you're leaving, you know, and I did not ask my bosses if I could do it. I just told them I was doing it. So I was like, just so you know, my therapist, my pastor, my wife, my doctor, and myself all think this is a good idea. So I'm going to do it. And they're like, well, God bless you. You know, we can't, we can't offer you a job. We can't offer a guarantee you'll have a job when you go back. So I get, did go do my hike, and that's another whole podcast probably. But um, <laughs> I was gone for um, 100 days, hiked my 1,500 miles, came back. And while I was on the trail, I thought about the fact that I have three sons who are now all adults, and two of them had kids, and I didn't spend enough time with them. And... 
you know, my father died when he was 58, and I'm like now 60-something, and I'm like, he didn't spend any time with me. And I'm like, okay, well, I am willing to go back to work part-time, but very part-time, and I need to help. Like, for instance, I have one son who is having a hard time keeping a job, and he has kids, and that just messed it all up. Like, he and his former partner have this kid and if she's working somebody's gonna watch the kid so who's gonna give up you know so i'm like i'll take that hit i will be the grandpa who like watches so you can watch yourself so i offered them this pretty sweet deal i thought like i'll work part-time i will like up my skills in this area i will train the rest of the staff on this thing they're like "Ah, sorry no thanks because basically an intern makes more money than a licensed therapist because the way they, they, they take, when you're an intern, you get 20% of your fees and okay. they get 80. When you get licensed, it flips and you get 80 and they get 20. So interns make more money than for the company, right? Well, you know, it's on them. They pretty much lost their shirts during COVID. And, but I was retired at that point kind of prematurely so it was kind of like my wife's still working full time at one point everybody moved out of the house at one point (laughs) one of them's back but you know it's kind of like puttering around my house what am I going to do you know well you're still taking pictures well I still took pictures and then COVID hit like six months later and I was locked down so I was taking pictures of my garden and we joke about that because you know I'm not a garden photographer (laughs) And people who never saw my, you know, new Facebook friends think I'm a garden <laughs> photographer. But wow, he's really good taking pictures of flowers and bugs. Yeah. Well, as we said before, you know, my process. You were talking about my process. So I was on the trail one day, and I carried a little uh, Canon point and shoot, you know, with some controls, and shoot raw. And I just shot cards, and I just banked them and I sh- I would share f- iPhone photos while I was on trail but when I was done I downloaded all that stuff put it on my website and um, probably 10 people looked at but um, you know everybody was celebrating what I was doing it was kind of fun but somebody asked me well what is it about hiking that you like the best and I go I hike to photograph I don't photograph just because I'm here I said I Photographing all of this is what I why I'm here. I could have probably done the fifteen hundred miles in eighty days or seventy instead of taking my time all the time to stop and photograph things. But they're like, Well, what do you like about photography? And I had to think about what's the best thing about photography? And I was like you know, oh you always get that question. I'm sure you do. Mm-hmm. What's the best picture you ever took? I'm like, I'm not answering that question because I really don't have a favorite. It's like you know, a couple thousand pictures and that would come to that conclusion. What's the worst thing that ever happened to you and all that stuff. But I kind of got to this place where I'm like, it's about light and it's about a search for light. It's about using light, right? It's just about being there and experiencing it and being prepared to record it when you see it, you know. And that's kind of part of the, the beauty of being a decent photojournalist. But then now I'm doing landscape, you know. It's kind of like, okay, you know. 
very few people in your pictures, and you know. But I still think that way, you know. I just shot a parade the other day in my neighborhood, you know, and published it on Facebook, you know. <laughs> and like, yeah, I didn't get paid for it. I got, you know, a lot of people liked it, but it was just fun, you know. It's like, okay, look at this gorgeous backlight, and there's a little bubble machine on. Let's shoot, you know, wow, you know. Still got the old journalism dog in you. Yeah. So, you know, I people are like, oh, it must be sad to have, like, all those credentials and that experience, and now you shoot for Facebook. I'm like, no. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Been a therapist. Major life point is to be a grandpa right now and travel, like, unbelievably all the time, you know, and not complaining, you know. And I still do therapy in a sense uh, a couple times a week on Mondays. I go to – I'm a community pastor at my church. It's a small church. In fact, I'm teaching this Sunday for probably only the third time in like seven years. But So when we're done here, I have to hit the books. But <laughs> Homework. Homework. But um, I'm a community pastor, and at one point our church was about 400 people, and they had 12 or 13 community pastors, and my wife's one as well, where we would just be tasked to come along people who were suffering through something. And since I'm a therapist, you know, I kind of had to step up on that than some of the other people. But we had a whole bunch of therapists in our church at one point. But now we're down in a small 50, 60-member, all-volunteer church. We don't have a paid staff. So the community pastors haven't had a lot to do during COVID. I mean, we have a couple of funerals, a couple of lost children, childbirth deaths, things, some very sad things, but, you know, people's parents dying. But one day I got a call from this uh, low-income housing place in Fullerton where uh, – most of the people live there are firmly homeless and they're on some subsistence. And it was during the height of COVID. And I got a call from the social worker who we were like kind of helping out with finances and stuff like that. And she's like, can you send one of your community pastors out here? I got a guy who's drinking himself to death and I can't get through to him. And, you know, she's full on social worker, but she's not a therapist. Right. So I'm like, okay. So I go out there and, he was gone that day. I talked to him a week or two later. He was in the hospital. But then she started introducing me to people. And for three years now, I've been talking to, going there once a week and just listening usually. And I've developed relationships with like 50, 60 people there. Some have died. Some have moved on. But, you know, that's my thing. And then on Monday nights, I have a, a Facebook, I mean, a, a Zoom group therapy group for my, originally for my church, but just a bunch of, a collection of people now. <laughs> um, and I might do another one, you know, if, but it's like, that keeps me in, I have my licenses renewed and current. So if I like need money, I could go back and start a practice, but I, I'm, Unlike you, Matt, I am not a salesman, <laughs> a freelancer. I always love the fact that my paycheck just showed up. 
Every two weeks. Yeah. And so the whole idea of running to practice gives me the creeps. Plus, God bless them, therapists are responsible for the lives of their clients. And you don't hardly get time to think about, like, take time off from them. Right. So that's rough. That's why I did the hike in the first place, because it was like, I just need a break. This has been toxic, toxic anxiety pressure for 35 years as a photojournalist and five years as a therapist, and I just need a break. Did that really kind of wipe things away for you? Kind of a clean, not totally clean, but give you a relief? It certainly did, yeah. It was like, if you're walking through the forest for 100 days, with your backpack on and all your personal belongings that you need to live with in a bag, you have a com- completely different perspective on things. Plus, I didn't have any other responsibilities. My wife was kind of freaking out, but um, I kind of told her, to, now's my time, you know. I've made concessions my whole career for you. Now you need to just suck it up a little bit. And she did. And But, yeah... Your head gets clearer, and you think things out. I, if I'm out for a week or two, I usually come up with some brilliant idea. It doesn't always work out, but... It's brilliant. It's brilliant. <laughs> you know, but it usually has something to do with you're not being true to yourself, or you're not, you know, you're people-pleasing, or you're, you know, you're not d- fulfilling your destiny as a as a father, a husband, a friend, you know, you need to do better. Or you're not taking care of yourself well enough, so you need to do better. So Now, you mentioned this early on, that you gave up two rolls of film in your life. Mm-hmm. What was the second roll of film? Okay, so the first one was to the Sandinista Capitan, uh-huh. who was going to shoot me if I didn't give the roll. Um, the other one was to a, a, an admiral, in the U.S. Navy, and it was just dumb. It was like, we're, hey, this is when Long Beach had a naval shipyard, and they're like, hey, we're going to take you on a bus tour, and the admiral's going to, you know, do, be the speaker and all this stuff. And we're, like, cruising around, and we're shooting out bus windows and stuff. And we go cruising by, I think it was the USS John F. Kennedy or something, like an aircraft carrier in dry dock. So the whole ship is exposed, and I just shoot up some pictures of the boat. And he's like... I think there's some secret stuff under the water line that you probably shouldn't have photographed. Give me the film. And I was like, no. And he's like, you know, you don't invite a journalist on a, on a press thing and then tell them to give you the film. Right. Should have said that up front, you know, like don't photograph this or that, you know? And he says, well, I'll make you a deal. I will have it processed and have it back to you. We'll check it and you can have it back by deadline. And I'm like, okay. So that one, I gave away, but I got the film back. The other one, I was lucky not to get, like, disappeared. Yeah. (laughs) Never to be heard from again. But, yeah, there are many, you know, uh, if you're a photojournalist, you're going to have people demanding your film, erase your photographs, threaten to punch you in the face. All the time. All the time. It's a normal, normal thing. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, you're in the park and you go... Oh, look, two lovers. Well, they're not married to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Oopsie. (laughs) Oops. And they come screaming, running at you, you know. (laughs) Who knew? Yeah. 
I am glad that my dad worked at the Long Beach Airport and I got to see through those 80s that Long Beach paper and see your work. Well, I have to tell the story of how we met. <laughs> you can tell the story. But I got to piggyback off that paper and see you through those years, and it was fantastic. Well, I appreciate that, yeah. So this young guy comes to the register. I don't know what your role was, but, you know, in the day of sports, as I said earlier, you didn't get to stay for the whole game. You had to run back on deadline. So maybe in a baseball game... I always joke, you you know, if you're playing a Canadian team, there's two national anthems that cut like 10 minutes. There's out of your, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> they cut out your time. You're like, oh. anyways, um, it was early in the season of the angels. And, you know, I literally covered like entire Dodger seasons and angel seasons, duck seasons, but I'm never a big fan of baseball. Um, even though, you know, no, not hurt your feelings since I know you're just a baseball guy, the baseball guy now. But Matt wanted to go with me to the game. So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, so we're in the third base dugout and we're pushing deadline. We're shooting black and white film, I think. And um, there's only like two or three plays that were of note. And so, you know, Matt, we got to go. So we go back to the register. I process my film. I I don't remember if we used to make a print or just mark it and say, here's the thing, you know. And I find my third, second base slide picture from third base, and that's the picture I'm going to give them. And then Matt comes out with his film, and it's a better picture of the same damn thing. And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, man up, you know. So I go back to the sports department. I go, this is your picture. Credit it with Matt Brown. And um, then Matt, I, I was like, I gave him the biggest Christmas gift ever <laughs> because the next day, you know, my mom saw my picture in the paper, you know. And I, I totally, I mean, that was like so fun for me because I always loved having any input in getting people excited about the job and doing the, you know. And so, yeah, that was one of those times where the competition was like this isn't important this you know this guy outshot me anybody can outshoot anybody on any given day you know being the best is a is a fallacy it's just there's no such thing right you know it was it was always a pleasure to work with you i cannot drive by the 91 freeway at the in and out in corona and not think about you saying that's the in and out I always eat at because if I go any further, I'm inside Orange County <laughs> and the <laughs> register won't pay for it. Yeah. And I'm always like, that's our in and out because we ate there that day yeah. after covering something in Riverside. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. The Your, reg register was so, <laughs> if you step one foot over the county line, we don't want the picture, you know. It's like, But the funny thing is the, all my editors from the East Coast, and they didn't even know what Orange County was. Oh, yeah. So they didn't even know what Habra was part of Orange no, County. No, none. You know, one time my boss said she was going to take her uh, daughter to Cal State Fullerton for something at night, and I looked at her, and I go, at night? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she was from, like, Dove Canyon, you know. Well, I had an editor from the New York Times call me on a Friday at, like, 3 o'clock asking if I can get up to 
Cal State or Sambor, uh, Santa Barbara for a seven o'clock basketball game. I was like, yeah. He rent me a helicopter. Like, there's no way. She's like, well, you know, on MapQuest, it only says, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't show you five o'clock on a Friday. Like, yeah. not a chance in hell. Yeah, yeah. Well, I ended up, you know, I said at night, and she was like, <laughs> well, is it dangerous? And I'm like, I, you know, furrowed my brow and then said, <laughs> No, it's not. It's a completely <laughs> safe place. It's where I live. I live like literally three miles yeah. away. And I go, come on, you don't even know the county, you know. None. And you're so they were so South County biased because they all lived in South County. Oh yeah. And they used to always say, "How come you're never down here?" And I go, "Because nothing breaks. Nobody shoots anybody. Everybody's too busy at their jobs paying for their mortgage in South County." Right. And what's old, exciting in Aliso Viejo? Yeah, and I'm like, well, you know. It's funny because I said everything happens in North County because that's where the crime is. That's where old wealth is. That's where old things break. That's where the class, that's where the culture is, you know. But on top of that, you know, and then Irvine, which is the safest city in America, <laughs> started having the most bizarre crimes on the planet. You know, these is wacky people, you know, guys burying secret things in their yard, murders by, you know, twin sisters. It was just you know, weird stuff. Weird stuff. <laughs> I was like, okay, North County is where everything happens, but the weirdest stuff <laughs> happens there. Happens in the <laughs> safest city in America. And then they would try to block us from covering it because they didn't want their reputation. To go of course there. not. You got to make that safest city logo every year. I used to have. I you know we had some freelancers that literally were banned from from Irvine. The cops would meet them at the gate practically. <laughs> Get out of my city. Get out of here. Yeah. Don't make my city look bad. I can't thank you enough for this. This has been awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, you've you're just been a huge, huge influence in my life. Like I said, looking at the stuff early, you know, working with you at the paper. You know, we covered Super Bowls and Rolls Bowls together, mm -hmm. all kinds of crazy stuff. It's been a blast. Well, I'm glad you're still doing it. <laughs> I know, one of the few, right? I still have a camera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. If you could shoot something right now, what would you shoot? The Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot tell you. You go to Paris. Oh, in a, in a heartbeat. I am going to Paris in <laughs> in uh, I think next year to take my granddaughter on her first grandkid visit because she's into she's going to special arts school and she's a drama person and you know she's a designer what other city would be best for that so but i don't know when john williams music plays the olympic theme i get a different feeling than i've ever got before because that is a special time you know just being in the stadium when the you know the hundreds going to go off or something like that it's just it it transcends the Super Bowl, it transcends any sports world championship. You know? Right. You yes. know, you've been there 17 days. You're you're next to some guy that speaks, you know, French and some guy that's from, you know, Brazil and another guy from the, the whole world's there covering yeah. it. I was standing in a gymnastics thing in the London Olympics. I was so clueless about sports. I remember Peter Reed Miller had shot the cover of Sports Illustrated, I guess, of the American team. I walk in, I haven't been prepared, and I walk up to him during during practice and say, which one's the American team? 
He looks at me like I'm the biggest dumb shit on the planet. And he says, the one in pink. And I'm like, thank you. You know, but um, I still, you know, that was my, my last best favorite assignment. You know, it's just. And then I was like at the gymnastics and I'm like, everybody turns around and I'm, you know, now I'm in the groove. I've remembered how to do this. I'm shooting the gold medal performances of you know the american ladies won that year and every turn around and like this guy from africa standing next to me and he says well what's everybody looking at and i said the princess the princess of what i said england <laughs> she's two rows back <laughs> you know it's just it's just a trip you know and i i you know that yeah that he didn't even know that's so beautiful he doesn't know that's the princess of it. Totally unaware. Yeah. I love that. You know, where else are you going to find that? Right. You know? Only in sports. He's there because, you know, some gymnast from Africa is in the competition somehow. Hey, he might not even have been assigned to it. Some yeah. other guy with a heart murmur was assigned to it, just like <laughs> you. Next me, you know, yeah. he's at the Olympics. That's right. He was, <laughs> he was going to do something through the He was Sierra. a garden photographer. <laughs> He's like, what the hell? I don't shoot this. Yeah. yeah. Not bad. You're the best, Bruce. I can't thank you enough, buddy. Thank you. All right. Let's do it again. We'll yes. do just one on just hiking trails. Sure. sure. Okay. All you right. got it. All right. Thank you for listening to part two of my conversation with Bruce Chambers. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button. Become a subscriber to this podcast. Remember, you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. And you can find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.